Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. It's a lot of political yard signs. Have you, have you seen those? They're a treat. Uh, compelling, compelling. Um, one of my favorites is it's a very simple yard sign, and it, it comes in a variety of forms. I've only seen the simplest of them. And it, it simply says uh, in English, but then translated into other languages, these words, hate has no home here. Oh, that's nice. It's nice. I don't know what it means, but I, I mean, I do, sort of, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's fine. I, I think it's probably a little bit of virtue signaling, and, and, and it might be sort of a jab at one's neighbors. Like, hate has no home here, but I don't know about the Smiths family, you know, two doors down. They're, you know, they're probably Klansmen. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, all I would want to say to you is, while I like that sentiment, right, it's better than other sentiments, like we want to kill everyone with machetes. That's a, that's a worse sentiment. But hate has no home here is beautiful. I just wish it were true. I wish it were true, but I know too many people who have those signs, and they're just as troubled as you are, right? They're just as troubled. They struggle with all sorts of family difficulties and with all sorts of divisions. And, um, and all I'm saying is, if only it were true that signs or ideological agreement could truly quell the hatred in a family. If that were true, I would put signs all over my yard. I don't think it's truth in advertising, actually. Because all of us come from uh, families uh, that had um, beautiful elements and virtues, as well as uh, rather dark gifts. And uh, I want to uh, speak today about family dysfunction and how it can be cured. You know, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and we spend a lot of time talking about people's family of origin. And I've heard stories that would make statues weep. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. The things that people have faced into as they looked at their parents' marriages, the, the abuse that they've seen, the, the rampant addiction, the, the negligence, the workaholism, the, the family secrets that are so dark I can't mention them from a pulpit. And I think it's remarkable that people who have experienced all these things still want to be married. I mean, it's a miracle that, you know, that that's their trajectory. I think it begs the question, knowing what I know about people's family histories and knowing what I know about my own family history, can a family be saved? I mean, can, can, the, can the enterprise be redeemed in any remarkable or long-lasting way? Well, I think this is where the Joseph story gives us a word of blazing hope. Blazing hope because it did happen once. I mean, somebody's family a long time ago did get better healing not they, they didn't get perfect but they were largely put back together again and hatred really left that home and it was replaced with sorrow and grief that turned into love and i want to speak about that family today and i'm gonna be engaging in some moral calculus with you that is derived from the reading from Genesis. And I think this is the equation, by the way. This is the equation for familial 
healing. Here it is. I'm going to read it twice because it's very sophisticated. Be prepared. Alignment with what is above us plus expression of what's within us creates healing with those around us. So first, alignment with what's above us as God plus expression of what's within us can create healing with those around us. Now, just a contextual word, we did read from different chunks of the Joseph story. I did skip a lot of drama, uh, and it is worth reading. But in order to get through the story within this calendar year, I had to speed things ahead a little bit. And so in our first mini section, uh, uh, Jacob's sons, uh, the rest of Joseph's brothers, uh, are standing around in Palestine uh, when their father says, you know, we, we can starve to death if you don't do something. So maybe you should go to the store. And they said, okay, we'll go to the, you know, we'll go to Trader Joe's, which is only in Egypt. And then uh, Joseph, in the next scene, sees his brothers come before him, and he plays a trick on them by hiding the Holy Grail in one of their flower bags. And then after that, he reveals who he is to them. And so I'm going to be... Um, looking at the themes in these passages in this moral calculation that I've made, this calculus. And the first one is, of course, alignment with what's above us. And we'll stop there. Alignment with what's above us. Because the story of Joseph is in many ways a morality play about how one man gets right with God. And everything else flows from that. But it's really about Joseph getting right with God because he begins as a brat, but after some pits and some prisons, uh, he, he... emerges with a blazing epiphany. And the epiphany uh, is simply this. God is the center of all well-being. God is the center of my well-being. God is the center of Egypt's well-being. God is the center of Pharaoh's well-being. God is the center of my father's well-being, my brother's well-being, Canaan's well-being. But God is the center and the, uh, the, the creator of all societal health. Uh, and uh, that's uh, quite something to say, given Joseph's rather uh, tarnished history. But after much pain and duress, he comes to the conclusion that he is not the center and no longer wishes to be the center. But he's very happy to play second fiddle uh, to the expert fiddler. So uh, this is um, what Joseph says about God in chapter 45, midway through verse 5. So let's read it together. I encourage you to take it up and read. Uh, This is the last section of text, uh, halfway through verse 5. So Joseph says this to his brothers who have just received this great revelation. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Notice the word sent mentioned three times. God sent, God sent, God sent. So Joseph is interpreting his horrific and bitter and torturous sojourn as an act of God. It's an act of God. It's a godsend, so to speak. Ha ha ha. Um, and uh, and what, a, what a strange way to interpret his life. Because he could have looked at it through the eyes of what might be called a realist or a cynic and said, well, I've just been through hell for years And I've only emerged now, and I'm still bearing the scars of all my bitter experience. 
and look what you people did to my life. It's only the, the luck of the draw that I made it out the way that I did. But he doesn't have that understanding. Instead, he interprets all that has occurred to him as an act of God. One of the brilliant things that Carl Jung said, the psychoanalyst said, is that the reason modern people don't see God is they don't look low enough. They don't look to the undercurrent of their lives that has steered them in this direction. And they don't see divinity, which is writ large uh, within the waters of that undercurrent. Uh, and so he says, God was the one who had his hand on me. God was the one who directed these torturous steps. God is the one who sent me to Egypt. It wasn't really you. Now, why did God do it? Joseph gives the reasons of heaven right here. Why did God do it? For you. For all of you. My would-be murderers. God did it to help you. So in other words, what he's saying is, I suffered for you. And because I suffered and went through what I went through, I have created a green zone of safety for you and great harvests for you and a country for you in which you will be safe and flourish. In other words, had God not sent me to this place, you would not have survived. God did it for you. Uh, and he also knows, Joseph knows something about his own history and something about his great-great-grandfather, Abraham, because that great promise was given to Abraham that he would make out of old man Abraham a great family, a great nation. And Joseph sees his own life and his sentness as part of the fulfillment of that ancient promise. God had to send me here to save the pledge that he once made to our family. And he did it. He kept his vow. That's why he sent me to Egypt, to save you so we could become a great nation. I think this is remarkable. I think it's beautiful. Notice how Joseph, the renowned dream interpreter, recounts and interprets his own blistered history. He doesn't see his pain as the center of his story. His grief is the center of his story. He doesn't see his drama as the center of the story. He doesn't even see his own promotion as the center of the story. He sees God as the center of his story. God sent me. Now, this is quite something, right? Because Joseph began in his dreamy state, as the person at the very center of his visions and dreams about his future. What's remarkable about Joseph, though, is not that his brothers would show deference and bow down to him, which they did do. What's remarkable about Joseph is that he was a man who himself learned to bow down and realized that he was not the center. He was quite happy to have God as the center. God was the one who lived at the top of Joseph's pyramid. He esteems God more highly than Egypt, more highly than Pharaoh, more highly than Canaan, more highly than his father, more highly than his brothers, more highly than his position, more highly than his prestige. He is somebody who enfleshed Jesus' principle of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else gets added unto you. He actually did that. In other words, he had a needful alignment with the highest supra-personality. And everything else in his life, all the health in his life, flowed from that posture of right alignment before God. And uh, that is, I think, what Scripture is sort of aching to teach us. That your primary loyalty and belonging and placement is before God. That's the principal thing. And then you can have the other things, too. But that needs to be your heartbeat. That needs to be the very core. Um, and C.S. Lewis wrote extensively about this and, and made a parable out of it in The Great Divorce. And many of you have read that novella uh, in which there's a group of uh, really cranky people in hell who are, uh, who are uh, uh, forced or invited to take 
a little uh, bus trip into heaven, and they hate heaven, by the way. And there's this uh, great and memorable scene between a ghostish woman from hell named Pam, who had in life suffered the tragic death of her son, Michael. But in the midst of heaven, this, this gray, ghostly spirit meets her deceased brother who went to heaven, a redeemed man named Reginald. And Pam sees him, but she's disappointed to see him. She expected to see somebody else. So she says to him, oh, Reginald, Reginald, it's only you. I expected somebody else. I thought my son Michael would have come to greet me. Why isn't he here? The spirit said, my sister, Michael wouldn't be able to see you as you are now. You'd be invisible to him, but don't worry, we'll soon build you up. Pam said, with a slightly threatening tone, if you of all people can see me, certainly my own, own son could, how can I begin to see him? Reginald responded, I'm afraid the first step is a very difficult one. But after that step, you'll go up like a house on fire. You will become solid for Michael when you learn to want someone besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, at least not yet. That'll come later. It's only the germ of a desire for God that we need to start this thickening process. Oh, you mean religion? Pam asked. Well, then fine, I'll do whatever's necessary. What do you want me to do? Pray? The sooner I begin, the sooner they'll let me see my son. I'm ready. Let's get going. But Pam, Reginald said, don't you see that you are only treating God as a means to Michael? The whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. That relation is older and closer. God also loves and also has suffered and also has waited a very long time. The ghost muttered, If God loved me, he'd let me see my boy. If he loved me, why did he take him away from me in the first place? I wasn't going to mention anything about that, but it's pretty hard to forgive God for something like that, you know. The spirit responded, Ham, God had to take Michael away from you. Partly for Michael's sake. God wanted your instinctive love for your child, and tigresses share that, by the way, to turn into something better. He wanted you to love Michael with a selfless love, for his own sake. But you can't love a, few, a fellow creature well until you love God. Your instinct that you often called love was something uncontrolled and fierce. Ask your daughter or your husband or your mother. You never once thought of her. The only cure for Michael was to take Michael away. This is cruel. How can you say that about a mother's love? It is the highest, holiest feeling in all of nature. Pam, said the white spirit, that is completely untrue. No feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they are made into false images. Pam spat, my love for Michael would never go bad, not in a million years. How could anyone love their son more than I did? Oh, of course, I'm probably wrong. Everything I say or do is wrong, according to you. But of course, said the spirit, shining with mirth. Isn't that great? That's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong the whole time. That's the joke. There's no need to go on pretending anymore that we were right. Then we can begin living. How dare you laugh about this? Give me my boy. I don't care about your rules. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son. Not even God. Why don't you go tell him that to his face? I want my boy and I shall have him. He is mine. Do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. I hate your religion and I hate your God. Subtle, but you understand his point. 
uh, you understand this point that you can love something beautiful in a manner that is not beautiful. And therefore, in some way, at least in relationship to yourself, devolve the object of your love. This is a man. Joseph was a man who understood what it meant to have right alignment with what was above him. And because of that, he was able to express righteously that which was within him. That's the next part of the moral equation. Alignment with what's above us plus expression of what's within us. Now notice, we have to start with God. We actually don't start with the belly. Like, we don't start with the self. Because if you start with the self, apart from God, you become a narcissist and you're entirely wrapped up in your own undiscerned and unfiltered ideologies and commitments, which will very often hurt you and hurt people that you love. We don't begin with what's within us because we are not the center of reality. We are very often out of accord with the center of reality. And what God does in redemption is begin to set our loves in order. To, uh, to create holy and more sacred and uh, brighter affections within us. And we see this in Joseph. We see a man in whom love evolved. He was a man with some uh, dark loves at the beginning of his story, but he grew. He grew up. He matured. He got a sense of self because of God. And then his love was purified, and he was able to pour forth his emotion to his brothers. And I want you to notice, friends, the bold language of emotion of heart in this passage. And it's really important, especially because, look, we're very near an academic institution which rightfully prizes the life of the mind. That's a very good and holy thing. But it's always to be held in balance with the life of the heart. Um, And notice the language of heart in this passage. This is uh, chapter 35, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. In other words, he told everybody to get lost, but they still heard him anyway. Skip to verse 14. It's like uh, Noah's flood in this passage. Lots of tears. Then he fell upon his brother's Benjam- Be- brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Notice the, the somewhat surprising audience of this emotional outburst. You have the royal family of Egypt and Joseph bro- Joseph's brothers. Unsafe audiences for this kind of display. Uh, to have a uh, emotive meltdown uh, in front of a, let's say, the Queen of England, if you had a private audience with her, would be a little bit off-putting and strange. You might want to save that for after the fact, right? Similarly, it would be a very strange thing for Joseph, even though he has all this power and prominence, to have a complete emotional meltdown and show himself vulnerable right in front of the eyes of his perpetrators. These are the men who plotted to kill him and almost did it, soaked his cloak in blood. And he's weeping over them, crying on them, shedding tears on these people. Now, the applicatory point here is simple, but I think it's uh, worth saying out loud. I think sometimes, now this doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes Christians prefer stoicism to scripture. That is, the stiff upper lip that the only place for feelings is in a private journal that is buried somewhere in your house so nobody can ever see it or read it, that the only things worth expressing publicly are ideas, but certainly not feelings. Uh, Sometimes I see this in families. 
uh, see this sometimes in the dynamic between a husband and a wife. Um, one of them will, uh, will notice the other is, is becoming emotionally expressive and try to put the kibosh on it by insulting them and saying, let's not get hysterical here. Let's stay reasonable. As if emotion is this dangerous, explosive, unfiltered part of us, but reason is unfallen. As if people, again, it's an overused illustration, are just brains on sticks. If you just have the right ideas, everything gets fixed. That's not a very holistic view of human nature, nor a biblical one. Uh, first of all, fallenness afflicts everything. Remember the Shema said you should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin affects heart, mind, soul, and strength. It isn't somehow that the mind or the reason is unafflicted by fallenness, where the heart is the devil's playground. That is an unbiblical and borderline Gnostic view of human nature. If you want a proof text for this, go back to Romans 1, where Paul outlines the fallen condition of humanity and says that what we have experienced is the darkening of the mind. He says it three times. Our reason is just as polluted as our emotions, and they're both capable of a beautiful and sweet redemption. And that's God's intention for you, making you a whole person who's able to express ideas as well as feelings. And that is what Joseph is doing in this passage. He is expressing the core of his heart. He is bearing his emotions in front of a somewhat surprising audience. And so here's my question to you. What holy feelings are you sealing tight in a mason jar? You know, I meet men sometimes who are just terrified to cry. So they're always on the verge of tears, but they never actually cry. And how great it would be in healing for them if they could just shed some tears. And I know people that have been like subtly grieving a loss for 20 years, but they don't permit themselves to feel that pain. They just keep pushing it down until they get ulcers, until their body reacts. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've seen people who, um, they really have words. They, like, practice the speech. This is what I need to say to my father. It's what I need to say to my mother. I know what I have to say. But they're so afraid of what will happen if they open their mouth that they never say what they have to say. And so they just tighten the lid and keep all the feelings within. Here's my question to you. What if God gave you those feelings? What if those feelings are like holy grails, which actually bring life to the world if they were to be expressed. Joseph had no problem expressing them. And I think this passage, which is so rich in emotion, rich in feeling, is there to teach us something about the value and vibrancy of feelings when they are brought out of you because of your connection with God. So, alignment with what's above us, plus the expression of what's within us, this is the last point, creates healing with those around us. Notice that Joseph doesn't keep his own personal healing and transformation with God a secret. In fact, he looks at these people, he looks at his victimizers, and he says, I want you to benefit the way that I benefited. I want you to rise the way that I have risen. And it's interesting how he sets them up for this rising. He pulls a prank on them. And it's not very nice in many ways. I mean, it's weird. So he like takes the Holy Grail and he puts it in the grocery bag. And then he tells his, you know, knights, go out and capture my brothers and bring them in before the royal tribunal. Let's have a little, you know, impromptu court case. 
Like he's Judge Judy, right? So he's Judge Judy, and they bring everybody in, and they find that the chalice has been uh, stolen, right, or placed in Benjamin's grocery bag. And people have wondered, why is Joseph doing this? What's the point? I mean, is he just being vindictive? I don't think so. I think there are two points to this exercise. The first is he's making them vulnerable because now they're all caught red-handed and they're before the judge and the judge's mercy. What they don't expect is the judge will show them mercy, but he makes them vulnerable. And just as a word, I don't like to be vulnerable, by the way. I mean, I, I can play the game, but I don't really like it because I want to appear confident and I don't want you to think I'm bad at what I do. So I want to appear very confident and collected and that I know the right answers. And, you know, if you call me, I'll have sage advice that will save you from years of pain and torture and torment. I mean, I want to think that, but it's not really true, right? I'm just as vulnerable as you are. Here's the thing that I've learned with God is that I rarely learn an enduring lesson with God unless I'm vulnerable, unless I'm diminished in some way and made open. So I think that's part of what's happening. And I think the other part of what's happening is, you know who Benjamin is? He's the youngest brother. And he is Joseph's full brother because he is the son of Rachel, the favored wife of Jacob, right? So it's just, it's him and Benjamin, Joseph and Benjamin. And they're both the youngest brothers in the family. And I think what he's doing is he is testing the rest of his brothers saying, have you learned anything over the years? Do you have any wisdom gleaned from heaven in your long and difficult and guilt-ridden lives. And here's what happens. Judah, the elder brother, sees that Benjamin is in real trouble and might be executed or might be exiled or have a terrible punishment. And he stands in the gap and says, I'll take it. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt the younger brother. I'll deal with it. And at that point, Joseph's eyes start welling up with tears and he realizes they've learned something. They, they didn't protect me, but they are protecting him. They learned that you have to stick together. You defend each other. You don't throw people in pits. You don't throw them to the wolves. You don't sell them into slavery. And they had an opportunity to use their little brother as a scapegoat, and they didn't do it. They stood up for him. They've learned something. And at that point, he comes undone. And he says in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Isn't that beautiful? And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I think those are some of the most remarkable words that any human being has ever spoken to any other human beings. He could have done all sorts of things. He had a plethora of options. I considered some of them. Like what would have been fun? What would have been interesting? A little justice, a little raw justice. He could have publicly humiliated them, right? I had a dream that you bow down, bow down lower. How about you get a mouthful of sand for a while? Or how about I put you in a prison for two years? I won't put you in for, you know, the rest of your lives, but maybe you need to learn a more thorough lesson. Or how about we execute all of you right now? After all, he had the authority to do it on the spot. Kill them all. That'll teach teach them, right? And that'll teach any of the onlookers not to cross me. But instead, he becomes this Christ-like figure. He is a precursor to Christ. He's a type of Christ. 
He becomes the Christ-like figure who uses his newly acquired powers not for rightful retribution. Instead, he says something very similar to what Jesus says, come near to me or come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and guilt-ridden and destroyed by squalid choices and failed dreams. Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you a country. I'll give you food. I'll keep you going. I'll keep you alive. And not just you, but generations that come from you. This is what Joseph learned, that the true power of life is in pardon. It's not in power plays. It's not in bullying. It's not in trying to cajole people to agree with you. True power, the apex of power is in pardoning, is in showing mercy and pity. The quality of mercy is not strained. And the result, of course, the result of this pardon is that Joseph's family was brought to a new place of healing and prophetic fulfillment. They didn't starve. They didn't die out. They multiplied. They became a great nation and a great nation that produced a great man that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. It's all tied together. And so we have alignment with what's above us plus expression of what's within us can create healing, healing with those around us. And if you align yourself with the highest principle, the supra-personality of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if, even if you do that imperfectly, it's fine. But when you finally come to a place with God to say about your own family, look, I've tried to massage this. Like, I tried to make it work. I took the classes. I read the books. I can't fix it. I can't fix it. It's beyond me. So look, I'll do whatever. But over to you. I yield. I yield. And then your emotional life starts to be contoured by that yielding and your emotions are altered by that yielding. God will give you words and courage and energy and, and a new dynamic. It really can happen with families. It really can happen. Um, maybe God in that moment will reorient you so that you're a little more honest, right? Maybe he'll give you honesty so that you can stop lying to your family about how well you're doing all the time. And you can really tell them how difficult things have been. Or maybe he'll give you acquittal, a sense of acquittal where you can have mercy on those who don't deserve it. Or maybe courage where you're able to confront a, an, an abuser or somebody who neglected you and tell them that that behavior was not all right and you can't tolerate that and things need to get better. Or maybe when you leave this service tonight, you can actually skip dinner to write that letter that you've been thinking about writing for the last 15 years. You can finally put pen to paper and say to whomever, we have to address this. The log jam has got to break apart at some point. Uh, but I think that's how the door of familial alteration cracks open. Alignment with God and renewed emotional self. And I'll uh, simply close with uh, this personal illustration. You know, I, um, I try to be honest with you about my own uh, history and its complexity. And while I don't go into sort of needless detail, I, I will say to you that like growing up in my own family was not easy for a variety of reasons that involved addiction and divorce. And it's very complicated. You know, and it's been many years since I've been in that situation. Uh, but just like you, I remember it all. And I experienced a profound healing at a retreat years ago. We were in this like prayer circle and I thought it was hokey, right? And I thought the leader was sort of dippy. But we were in this like prayer circle and, and she said, why don't we all 
uh, be very quiet, attached to our grace center. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but okay. Yeah. And to, let's be very quiet and hunker down into our grace center and just receive whatever the Lord has for us in terms of healing. And I'm like, ah, what could it hurt? I mean, I wasn't being very pious. I, I should have been better. Um, and whenever she said that, and I closed my eyes to, to kind of halfway pray, an image came to me like white lightning. I mean, like out of the blue. It wasn't that I had been thinking about it all weekend. I, I wasn't. Um, but this image came to me, and I'll, I'll uh, share it with you. So when things got really bad at home, which they frequently did, I would leave. It was the only way I could deal with it, you know? Like, I just had to go. And we lived in the country, and on one of those country roads, there was a path up a, a hill where there was an abandoned field completely surrounded by trees. It was beautiful. And I would just go there to be by myself and to sometimes cry, sometimes to be very quiet, sometimes to scream. But it helped me in a process. That place was like my place. And I got a vision of that place. But in this vision, I wasn't alone. I was always alone before, but I wasn't alone there now. Uh, I was there with uh, Monique, and I was there with my girls. But they were grown up, and they had children of their own. And I was there with my parents and all the people in my life who had been through terrible divorces and awful court cases and all of their antipathy for one another was entirely gone and replaced with this sense of bonding where we were all okay. Like it all worked out. We were reattached and everything really was forgiven and made tender and strong at the same time. And we were all facing the same direction. We were looking toward the sunrise. And then I came too. And I opened my eyes. And that experience and that vision, whatever you make of that, reframed how I've related to my own family. Because it gave me something to walk toward. That it didn't have to be terrible forever. And I didn't have to hold on to hate in this hostility, but I could give it to God and I would be all right and they would be all right. So that was what God gave me, a little a vision, something to walk toward, uh, the goal for my family, which is simply an honest and gracious equilibrium. And that's my invitation for you at the end of this sermon right now is to take the crippled hand of God, to take the crippled hand of God and walk toward the sunrise because with the God who meets us in Jesus Christ, everything has now become possible. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your